1: Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 111 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, guitarist extraordinaire Johnny A., I want to remind you that it's Christmas in July in the online store at MistressCarrie.com. All this month, you can get 10% off of everything in the store when you use the code JULY2022. I'm talking tank tops, hoodies, beanies, t-shirts, beer koozies, pint glasses, coffee mugs, mouse pads, sticker packs, and so much more. And if you want to get 20% off of everything in the online store, get yourself a Mistress Carrie backstage pass on Patreon. It's Christmas in July this month on MistressCarrie.com. My guest this week is a guitar legend. He's from my home state of Massachusetts, and Johnny A is a band leader, an instrumentalist, and all-around guitar badass. He's traveled the world, played with everyone, and worked on a really special project during the COVID-19 lockdown. He had time to work on From A to Beatles. These are three-piece instrumental versions of Beatles classics and deep cuts. And he's now turned From A to Beatles into a live show. So, Johnny A. checked in on the show to talk Beatles music, their inspiration, songwriting, guitar playing, and his upcoming live shows, including this Sunday, July 24th, 2022, at Kowloon in Saugus, Massachusetts. If you want details on that show and all of the other shows he's playing, check the links in the show notes of this podcast. I've been dying to have him on the show for a while, so allow me to introduce you to Johnny A.
0: have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, my goodness. I have been waiting to have you on the show. Johnny A. Hey,
3: doll. How are you?
1: How are you? Uh,
3: hanging in there, you know, doing the best I can with what I got. <laughs>
1: well, you got a lot. You, you should be doing all right.
3: Doing pretty good, you know, doing all right. Good to get good to finally start kind of working again. You know, I've been pretty much dry for almost 2 years, so it's it's it was scary there for a while.
1: You normally spend so much time out on the road and obviously being a musician, this is probably the most time you've ever spent at home in one time in your entire adult life, right?
3: Yeah, it's been definitely like that for Well, I mean, even from when I was playing with Peter Wolf back in the 90s, we were working a lot. And then uh, I started my solo career, what, in 99? And when the record came out in 2000, uh, nationally, I was on the road for 20 years, basically. And uh, then touring with my solo thing. And then for three or four years with the Yardbirds, um, I was touring a lot. And uh, this last two years has been, you don't know what to do with yourself. (laughs)
1: How important was it for you to have your guitar at home? Or did you not want to play it? Cuz I've heard both from musicians.
3: No, I I lo- I lo- well I play every day. So, um I probably would have went nuts if I didn't have a guitar. And it was kind of cool because um it was a good process of rediscovery for me and reinvention you know, and uh, taking a hard look at what I did and how I did things. And um, I discovered, a, you know, I ended up doing something that I had been wanting to do for a very, very long time and never really had the time to put it together, which is this this Beatles thing that I have going on. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge, uh, crazy Beatle fan. I got to see them in 66. And, you know, those guys, their music... Uh, and I always I wanted to be John Lennon when I when I saw Red Sullivan in '64. I mean, I wanted to be John Lennon. <laughs> but um, those guys have had such a profound, daily influence on me, on my music, and the way I approach writing, production, uh, arrangement, all that stuff. So even though I'm an instrumental artist, their uh, their musicality has stuck with me, and um, so it had it gave me the opportunity to investigate trying to do this beatles project which i'd wanted to do for a long time um so it was a long you know we do i put a band together with a couple good friends of mine who are avid Beatles fans marty richards he's the drummer who also played with the joe perry project and jay giles band and the bass player is dean cassell who's the bassist for uh, john Cafferty and viva brown and we've all been a lot of uh, have been long, long friends for forever. And I've played with both of these guys in different uh, iterations of my bands. And uh, I called them up and I said, hey, I'm thinking of, you know, what are you doing? You wanna record some Beatles songs? So I have a home studio and um, I called my buddy, John Shipp who used to work on the road with me, who's now out with Aerosmith and uh, Hollywood Vampires and blah, blah, blah. And I said, would you engineer some sessions in the house? So he came down and the plan was to I had the guys for three days and this was about a year ago, January now. And uh, I had them for three days and I said, let's let's do 10 songs. So the the sessions went so smooth and so fast, we ended up cutting 21 songs in three days. in three days we cut 21 songs and uh you know i had to still finish overdubs and everything like that but the basic tracks for 21 songs were done in three days actually two days because one day was really kind of set up it was a half a day um and uh, the stuff came out great and i you know we were listening to the stuff and i sent some of the tracks around to the guys and i said you want to do a little live project. I mean, just local, you know, I don't want to tour with it. It's too expensive to tour with a band these days, but how would you guys feel about going out and performing some of this live just on, you know, spare time. Everybody was up for it. We started to do a few gigs and it got really great response. And we ended up getting more gigs than I expected. We, I mean, I have done as many gigs with the Beatles the F- A Beatles band this year than I did with my solo stuff, just as much work. So um, it's been fun. Matter of fact, we're going on a cruise. We're doing uh, Justin Haywood's Moody Boo's cl- cruise uh, in February with the band. Um, so it's been fun and, and it's in- all instrumental, which is really cool because I got to basically use my arranging chops and explore doing guitar arrangements of these fantastic, this, Great catalog, you know, Um, it's fun to see the audience sing along with these songs and um, it's just a good time.
1: Well, I have a lot to ask you about, because one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I am a diehard Beatles fan myself. I look at it and describe it as the greatest gift my mom ever gave me because she was such a huge Beatles fan that I have distinct memories of being a little kid leaning over that Hutch stereo that had the turntable, the radio, and the 8-track and playing the White Album on an 8-track when I was a kid. By the way, that's what happens. This this person that evolves, this is what happens when you expose a 5-year-old to the White Album, right? But when it comes to... The idea of being able to see the Beatles live. Obviously, it never would have been possible in my lifetime, and I can't imagine it. Where did you see them, and what do you remember it being like, and could you even hear the band above the girls?
3: Well, it wasn't just the girls that were screaming. It was everybody that was screaming, and I saw them on their 66 tour, their last tour, I saw them about a week and a half before their final show at Candlestick Park. And I saw them at Suffolk Downs in in East Boston, the racetrack. And I was in the very front, as front as you can be, which was still, you know, they they played on the raceway. So um, they were still far away from you. Um, The experience was. uh, It's really kind of hard to to formulate in words what it felt like to be in the room that day because it it was just and you got to remember this was 1966 so i would have been how old was I? i was born in 50 i'll be 70 in november by the way
1: oh i got a big birthday coming up in october too
3: So let me see, 66, 52. I was 13 years old. I was 13 years old.
1: Right in the middle of when you're making all of your big, important music decisions, like those formative years.
3: So um, August, 66, and it was just like this ridiculous amount of wave of emotion. That's uh, that's the only way I can explain it. And it's just like, you know, just the perpetual smile on your face from ear to ear, you know. Sure, the screaming was deafening, and the only way you could really have an understanding of what music they were playing is if you blocked your ears, it would it would filter out all the high end from the screaming, so you could kind of hear the bass, and you and the PA systems were horrible. Um, you could hear the bass and maybe some of the vocals, so you can get an idea. They only played 22 minutes. You know, and it's I'm trying funny. I'm to imagine
1: I going to a concert, right? You drive there, you park, you get a babysitter, and the band plays 22 minutes. If a band did that now, the fans would burn the place to the ground.
3: Yeah, but they were like, I think, five acts on the bill. It was the Beatles, it was the Ronettes, it was Bobby Hebb, it was the Circle, I think. I don't know if the Remains were on that tour or not in 66. I think they were on the 64 tour, maybe the 65. But um, I don't, it's funny, I don't really remember... I remember two um, experiences from the night as far as seeing them. And the funny thing is I went with my cousin Sue, who's 10 months younger than I am, because we lived together, her dad had died and my mother and dad got divorced, so we were all in the same house. And uh, we both remember seeing the day in black and white. We don't recall seeing the concert in color. We both say, you remember do you remember? No, I, I, I think I remember it like it was in black and white. Which is very odd. Um, but the two the two visual things I can pick out of my brain were seeing George Harrison sing If I Needed Someone. And there was another episode where a guy was running on the, and got on stage, went to hug the guys, and one of the amplifiers almost fell over. And I was telling Chachi LaPrette about that episode, and they interviewed the guy. They actually had an interview of the guy that ran on stage And you can never find any footage of Suffolk Downs. And then recently, which is really crazy, because we're talking about, what, 50, how many plus years after I saw the show, there was a little 18-second video clip that showed up on on YouTube. And it was from George Harrison doing If I Needed Someone, which is the only memory I had of the show. That's That's crazy. That's crazy, right?
1: Yeah.
3: To think that of the whole show, only that was captured And that happened to be the only thing that I remembered from the show.
1: It's so crazy because nowadays people are so used to having thousands of views of every concert and everything because everybody's got this HD camera in their pocket. Right. But back then, you know, a little Super 8 camera or anything like that was expensive technology to have with you.
3: And it would have no audio either. It would just be Um,
1: film. I've done a lot of interviews talking about the seismic impact of music in general, but definitely rock and roll of the Beatles appearance on Ed Sullivan and how it's just impossible to measure the impact of that ripple effect. Because again, nowadays it's hard to imagine the whole country stopping to watch something simultaneously. So every teenager that had any musical inspiration or musical talent was planted in front of the TV that night, and an entire generation of musicians was inspired in one television show. Nothing like that could ever happen again.
3: Well, I had been a a musician before that because I had been studying drums, and I started playing drums when I was six, and I was into people like Sandy Nelson and, you know, surf music like the Safaris and stuff like that, but when the Beatles hit in 64, and I heard I want to hold your hand, which was came on the radio maybe a few weeks before they hit Ed Sullivan. That's when I switched to playing guitar. But the when you're talking about the seismic seismic effect of that of that band, not even just the Ed Sullivan, but but the band, it, you know, when you talk to musicians that say newer generation musicians, let's say, because I don't think I've ever met anybody from my generation or the next generation that has never said they like the Beatles, but there are some younger kids that say they're not influenced by them. But the reality is that I don't think there is anybody that hasn't been influenced by the music because even the people that don't listen to the Beatles are listening to somebody that was influenced by the Beatles. So um, their effect uh, globally uh, on music and culture, really, Um, I, I don't know if it's even measurable, you know? yeah, I mean, Elvis Elvis obviously was, and Sinatra, they had their day and, and, the, and they were big. And I just saw the new Elvis movie, which puts a lot of other things in perspective, which was really good, by the way. But um, it still didn't have the impact as the Beatles. And even though Elvis impacted people like the Beatles and Eddie Cochran and Little Richard impacted, and the Everly Brothers impacted people like the Beatles, those people didn't have that same type of huge effect, astronomical effect that the Beatles had on everybody else after them.
1: Not only that, but I think especially for people that may not have understood the writing process and the brilliance of their songwriting, and then you see this Peter Jackson series, and you're literally watching Paul McCartney write these amazing, prolific songs, and you're watching the writing process. A lot of those artists that you talked about didn't write their own music. They had other songwriters writing music and they were amazing performers, singers, instrumentalists, all of that. But the Beatles also, in their bag of tricks, had this amazing songwriting ability that's nearly unmatched. I mean, well, think about
3: it. Not only John Lennon and Paul McCartney being the, the team, but look what George Harrison turned out to be as a writer. Yeah. And, and the ability to, first of all, even find four guys in the same town. <laughs> then, you know, kind of played and ha- put a band together, then find three of the four guys being, un- you know, arguably three of the best pop songwriters in the same little sea shanty town of Liverpool. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of crazy. But um, what I was going to say was uh, I lost my train of thought about I wanted to tell you something that. Uh, oh, never mind, just go
1: on. It'll come back to me. So one of the things that whenever I have somebody on the show that I always ask is a songwriter's perspective question. Because you can ask, what's your favorite album? What's your favorite song? That's completely subjective. But I always ask a songwriter, give me an example of any song from any artist of any genre that you believe is a perfect example of songwriting as a craft that you coveted. It's perfect, and you wish you wrote it. And I got to tell you, at least 50% of the time they cite a Beatles song. I just had Frank Bello from Anthrax on, and he spent 10 minutes analyzing a Beatles song because of the songwriting ability. So I'll pose that question to you. If you had to pick a song that you think is brilliantly and perfectly crafted in songwriting, can you pick one and which one is it and why?
3: I don't think I can pick out one song and I don't think I can pick out one artist, but I can pick out maybe three. Hit me. I would say God Only Knows by Brian Wilson. I would say Wichita Lineman by Jimmy Webb. And then it's very hard to pick one Beatles song, and I'm so slanted to Lennon. Um, I might have to say something like Strawberry Fields Forever. Um, uh it's, it's I don't know. It's hard. I have such a uh, varied appetite for music and different genres and styles and different things. I mean, the very first album I ever really bought with my own money was a Beach Boys album. Um, so I was a big fan. And, you know, I just recently kind of got reacquainted with God Only Knows and did a solo guitar arrangement of it. And I just was just uh, amazed at the song, the craft of that song. It's, it's, it literally can bring tears to your eyes. It's amazing. And I know what I was going to say to you earlier was about the Beatles Get Back movie and, and the Peter Jackson thing. And the thing that astounds me about those guys is when you see them in the process of rehearsing, putting these songs together, they didn't seem to toil over it. You know, it was just very, very casual. I mean, those performances that you see in the Peter Jack, those are the let those are that, that's the Get Back album. There's no overdubs, there's no nothing. So, and when you think about um, the process of recording back in 63 and 64, and maybe even summer 65 for that matter, they only had, in the beginning, they only had three track machines. When they were doing the first records, it was only three tracks. And um, then they went to four track. And then by, I think by the time maybe they got to Sgt. Pepper, I don't even think that was an eight track. I think that was two four tracks synchronized together. But what they did, and and how they would go into the studio, and they'd have a three hour session, and they'd do three songs, uh, one two songs in the first hour and a half, and another two songs, and and then they're done. There's no overdubs. They're just done. The songs are done. You know, like, they make look, it
1: look easy.
3: It's crazy. It's funny. I saw a quote with uh, Paul McCartney. When he was in the studio with Dave Grohl, and uh, they're, they're playing and they're working on a song or something like that, and they, and, the so, and the song stops and they're having a little chat, and Dave Grohl says to McCartney, "You make it lo- look so easy," and McCartney says, "It is." You know, it's just that's the kind of the way they just approach it. I mean, obviously they were gifted and obviously they worked hard and they tried to excel through every album and and uh progress through every album in their writing and their recording techniques and their approach and their concepts and stuff but in the beginning i mean they just they just did it there was no other way there was none of this stuff that i have behind me where i could sit here for like a month
1: you could make me sound good in that studio
3: oh you sound great (laughs) i said but uh, you know i was i was going to say you know i could sit here for a month crafting the perfect guitar solo if i want they just had to do it all live. There was no made, punching in.
1: They made all that music in a decade, too. Yes. And, and they, they were done, I mean, obviously with their solo stuff, not, but as a band, they were done by the time they were all like 30.
3: Yeah, 62 to 69 was their recording, or 70, I guess. I, well, I, I think the record was recorded in 69, the, the last album, but it so doesn't make any sense. No, seven years.
1: It's unbelievable.
3: Yeah. And you know, the thing that's interesting, if you go on like Wikipedia and you look up like the Beatles touring schedule, I mean, they were a real band in like 61, 62, 63. Those guys were doing over 200 shows a year. They were doing a lot of shows. So by the time, and then when they were in Germany and they were doing like six, seven sets a night, by the time they were ready, I mean, they were really, really well oiled. Yeah. You know,
1: Um, when you were young and going from wanting to play the drums to becoming a guitar player and you picked up the guitar. Where'd you get your first one? Did somebody buy it for you? Where'd it come from?
3: And my mom, uh, I took, you know, it's a funny thing about that and I'll tell you where I got my first one, but the funny thing about drums and guitar is when I started playing drums, I actually took drum lessons. I, you know, I lived in Malden, Massachusetts and there was a little drum teacher down the center and I would take drum lessons and I was okay. I don't think I ever would have been Steve Gadd or anybody Vinnie Coliuto or anybody great like that. I was a mediocre meat and potatoes drum drummer. I don't think I ever would have accomplished anything greater than that level. And when I switched to guitar, I never took lessons. It just kind of came to me and I figured it out by watching people. There was no YouTube, there was no videos or anything. But I got my first guitar I asked my mom and I got a, it was from um, Lafayette Radio. There used to be a, a chain that was like a Radio Shack called Lafayette Radio. And uh, it was a little $49 electric guitar with a little matching, probably $40 amplifier or $30 amplifier. Do you or still
1: something. have it? Please tell me you still have it. I don't
3: have the that guitar, but I have the first guitar I ever bought with my own money, which was a Vox guitar that for $88, I used to sweep... Uh, hair clippings in my aunt's beauty shop where my mother worked on Saturdays. And they paid me $5 a Saturday to clean up the shop and sweep up the hair and stuff. And this was in Medford. She had a hair salon called the Continental. And um, downtown, there was a music store. And there was this white Vox guitar in the um, window. It was $88. And I saved up you know, sweeping. And that was my first guitar that I bought with my money. I still have that one.
1: When you started to play it, do you remember the first song that you actually mastered and you were like, okay, I might actually be good at this thing.
3: Um, I don't know if I remember the first song, but I remember the first guitar solo that I learned, which was secret agent man by Johnny Rivers.
1: Nice. That's
3: the the very first guitar solo that I could play note for note and make it sound like it.
1: I had um, Nuno Betancourt on the show during the height of the pandemic. So it's got to be like almost two years ago now. And he got me off on this line of questioning when I talked to guitar players now, because he and I got into this whole conversation about tone. Mm. And the story he told me was getting invited at the beginning of Extreme's career by Dweezil Zappa to go sit in on a Van Halen rehearsal. And Eddie let him play his rig. And how uh, upset Nuno was that, he still sounded like Nuno and not Eddie Van Halen, even though he had all of Eddie's stuff. And so it led me down this whole kind of investigation on guitar tone and where it comes from. So where do you think tone or specifically your tone comes from? What, what is it? Where does it come from?
3: It's not the gear. It's definitely not the gear. It's the person. Um, It's, how they interpret what's in their mind's ear through their being and out their hands. And I've had the same experience. For example, uh, I'm friends with Robin Ford. And actually, I'm good friends with Nuno, too. He's a sweetheart. By the way, if you talk to him, tell him I said hi.
1: I will. He's a great um, guy and he swears a lot. There was a lot of editing required with that interview.
3: Um, As a matter of fact, I just saw him... He came to my show uh, out in LA when I, uh, right before the lockdown, he was, he came out to the show, but um, going back to tone and how personal it is, uh, I went to, Robin Ford's a friend of mine. We were doing a festival together in Atlantic City and um, he has one of these rare, expensive amplifiers called a Dumble, which is, they go for at the time, they were going for $25,000, $30,000, which was years and years ago. Now, to find one of them, they're anywhere from a hundred to $150,000 to get one of these amps, designed by this man, Alexander Dumble, who's recently passed away. But anyway, here's Robin, and he's uh, doing his sound check. I go up, come up to say hi, and I said, oh, you brought your Dumble. He goes, oh, yeah, did you have a playthrough one? I said, no, never have. And he said, yeah, hey, check it out. And he was had an old gold top Les Paul, and he gave it to me, and I put it on, and I started playing. It didn't sound like Robin Ford's tone. It sounded like me just playing through an amp. And I can play through anything I have. I, I just recently bought this little practice amp that's this big. You know, it's a tiny little battery-powered thing I got for the dressing room. And it doesn't matter whether I play through that or I play through an old Fender Blackface or an old Marshall. I still sound the same no matter what I do. So I, I don't the gear I think is is the last to do with it. I, I mean obviously the tools the tools that you use inspire you to do a, play a certain way and approach things a certain way, but I don't think they're the basis for your tone. I think the basis for the tone is one's being. You know.
1: As a music lover like I am, surrounded by amazingly talented musicians all the time, but not having that ability myself, I struggle to kind of understand where it all comes from. And one of the things that I'm always fascinated about is how are all of the riffs and ideas not written and taken already? Because there have been so many songs and so many solos, and it's still the same most of the time, six strings. It's still the same 88 keys on the piano. And that year after year, musicians are always finding new songs to write, new riffs and solos. Have all of the things been written?
3: No, because it's a, it's a combination of the 12 notes, the endless rhythmic possibilities. Um, I mean, there's only, what, 12 notes, right? A, flat, D... E flat, uh, E, F, F sharp, G, 12 notes, you know, really basically to the octave. And so when you think about that, it's not even 88 notes, it's only really 12, they're just in different registers octaves. Um, I don't know, but it's, it is befuddling when you think of the millions of songs that are out there and, and, uh, the millions of more that are going to be created. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, there are things that are similar, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear pieces of, of melodies that we, Oh, I've heard that somewhere else before, but um, it is a fascinating phenomenon.
1: Are there newer guitar players now, since you've had such longevity in your career, are, are there newer guitar players now that you look at and go, you know what, they're bringing something different.
3: Um, you know, I must confess that I'm probably not uh, up on, Newer artists, uh, I should be more up on it, but I'm not because I always kind of gravitate to the things that, um, I don't know, center me as a musician and the type of tones that I like and the type of playing that I like. And it's not one genre. I mean, I like a lot of different guitar players, but they happen to be from... (laughs) You know the era that I grew up, like uh, listening to John McLaughlin from the, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra, or Robert Fripp from King Crimson, or or Bill Connors from Return to Forever, or Jeff Beck, or early Clapton, or Mike Bloomfield, or Albert King, or you know, I always kind of go back to them, and and everybody after that to me, they sound like it's a version of all that stuff. So, I mean, I mean, there's probably some young cat out there that's doing phenomenal stuff that I, you know, I'm not hip to, I'm sure there is, you know, uh, but I, I find that it's especially, you know, you listen to a lot of the newer blues rock artists. I mean, it's kind of all coming from, you know, Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and, who are coming from BB King and Buddy Guy and Muddy Waters and you know uh, Howlin' Wolf and stuff like that, Robbie Johnson, and so um, I do happen to like that era of uh, '60s to I'd say late '70s music as far as guitar playing goes.
1: Before I was on the radio, I used to be a lighting and staging tech, oh, which cool. that was like my my former life, and I ran lights for BB King once. And he basically just told me um, to put to flood the stage with Roscoe 181, which is that deep black light blue color. Oh. And then he said, just put your feet up and watch the show. <laughs> and so I just put the blue lights on the stage and just sat back. And it it felt like it was coming out of his bone marrow. Like in that moment, I remember thinking like, he's doing exactly what he was born to do. Yeah. It's not like he was going to become a refrigerator repair man. Like it was just, it was just in his soul, in his essence, in his core. And I was so taken aback by that experience. Cause I was like, there's a person that's exactly where they're supposed to be in their life doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing.
3: Yeah. BB was great. I, I had the honor of being able to, with him, I, I must have done maybe a dozen shows. or So with him, and he was just the greatest guy. I mean, he was such a gentleman and so complimentary and so uh, generous with his uh, time. And you know, he would make sure that did the crew treat you okay? Did you get enough time on the stage? And then at the end of the night, you know, when he would finish his set and doing his encores and introducing, he'd always bring. Well, he brought me out, and I'm sure it's something he did with all the support acts. He'd he'd call you out to the stage and introduce you as his co-star, and uh, which I never forgot that because you know who's going to be a co-star to BB King?
1: Yeah, right. I
3: mean, just that. I mean, that was just the way he was. He was such a generous guy, you know that. And he would stay till the very last. He would sign every picture, talk to every person. He would be the last guy out of the building and on the bus. Every night. And he was, you know, this guy was doing, what, over 300 shows a year. And I'm sure he had been doing over 300 shows a year for decades. And that wasn't in the greatest health, you know, but he was, he remained generous and humble to to the end, you know.
1: Um, You have a show, speaking of touring, you have a show coming up on the 24th of July at Kowloon, and you're going to play from Ada Beatles.
3: Yeah, that's the show that we're doing there, uh with the guys. I'm looking forward to it because it's kind of like, I think it's like the first North Shore, kind of my stomping ground show that I've done with this thing. So it'll be fun. I graduated from Saugus High, so it'll be interesting to go back there. Not that I know if anybody still lives there that I know, but um, it's at the Kowloon, which was there when I was in junior high school and in high school, that place had been there forever. And Andy Wong and Bobby Wong and just the families. I think that place has been there since the 50s. Um, so it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Um, from Ada Beatles, it's a Sunday afternoon in July. Hopefully the weather will cooperate. And, you know, a lot of the, the proceeds from the show is going to, you know, uh, benefit, uh, veterans organizations, which is a good thing.
1: It's a huge uh, passion of mine and I do a lot of work with veterans. So I commend you for, you know, being so involved and, 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 you know, having the proceeds go to that. I think it's awesome.
3: Yeah, uh, it's yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And it is a good it is a good uh, to get involved with with those type of groups and stuff like that. So.
1: I saved this question for the end in case you hate me because of my this is a very controversial opinion. And I'm going to ask you about it. And I saved it for last in case it makes you angry. What do you think about the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton's Sgt. Pepper movie? Because I love it and I refuse to apologize for that opinion.
3: Well, I haven't seen it in a long, long, long time. I mean, I i don't think, I've never viewed it more than once. I saw it when it originally came out. And I, might be, I must have saw it in the movies or something. Um, but I thought it was kind of goofy.
1: <laughs> I have taken a lot of flack on the air over the years because you talk about those formative years, right? Like for me, I was a kid. And... There's Peter Frampton and all of his handsomeness and the Bee Gees at the height of all the stuff. And I was such a Beatles fan as a kid. And so, A, I love the music. B, I love George Burns. And C, it gave me this unhealthy fear of Steven Tyler and the guys from Aerosmith. When I was a kid, I was scared of them because of that damn movie.
3: Yeah, well, you might have every right to be scared of those guys. <laughs> I've known them for quite a long time. <laughs> um, no, they're good guys. Uh, but no, I, I thought the movie was a little goofy, you know, although the artists that were in a great, Peter Frampton, fabulous artist. I toured with Peter. i uh, never met the Bee Gees guys, but obviously. Uh, Some of the know,
1: most prolific songwriters ever. Gary
3: Gibb is considered the second most prol- prolific, uh, second most successful songwriter behind McCartney. Um And Aerosmith, obviously, one of the greatest rock bands ever. And uh, I can't even remember who else was in it, but it was Goofy.
1: (laughs) You don't hate me for liking it, though. No, I don't hate you for liking it. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. (laughs) Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate your time. I am going to do everything I can to come to the show because I really want to see how you take these Beatles songs and turn it into this new thing. I mean, how do you even go about choosing the songs you're going to do? That's number one, impossible. That's task. A one. Yeah. Well, that's,
3: yeah. Some of them are by some of them that you want to do. It's kind of just not possible to do as a trio. You know, some of them are not, but we, we get adventurous. I mean, we do uh strawberry fields forever and we were doing a day in the life. And we do, we do everything from the first album. We do all my love and we do hold me tight. We do. She said, she said we do, Nowhere Man, Ticket to Ride, uh, what else do we do? Uh, Anya Bird Can Sing, uh, Till It Was You. I mean, If I Fell and I Love Her, This we do a lot of them. Um, and some of them that I want to do, I just can't figure out how to do uh, as in a trio format. But um, it's challenging. It's the most work I have. I, I mean, my solo career has been involved. The solo show that I do with all the looping is pretty involved, too. But this Beatle thing trying to capture the melodies, the vocal lines, obviously, and then trying to pull pieces out of the recordings that are like earworms to people that you know you should put this in so they can, you know, whether it's a little guitar part or whether it's trying to imply the background vocal or the the cello in that song or the horn part that was in Strawberry Fields, or, you know, so trying to come up with these guitar arrangements that, take pieces from their original productions and make it hopefully familiar to people. I've gotten a lot of comments where people came up to me and they've said, you know, I didn't know what I was going to think, but you've made the music, the way you play it has made me, given me a, a new appreciation for their songs. Like, you know, they hear the melodies in a different way. And it's also fun because people sing along. So, you know, it will, it's not uncommon for us to be playing on stage and people are singing Strawberry Fields or Tickets to Ride or, you know, All My Loving" or something like that. So it's it's a fun show.
1: I'm not going to sing along. I don't want to ruin the show with this voice. Uh,
3: I won't hear you because I'll probably have my in-ears in. Ears in.
1: <laughs> and before we go, to those people that say that they don't like the Beatles, you're just wrong.
3: No, they are definitely wrong. And they been <laughs> touched by them whether they know it or not.
1: Thank you so much for your time. I hope to see you at Kowloon on the 24th. All right, doll. See you later. Good to talk to you. Thanks, you too. Thank you. There he is, the one and only Johnny A. You can see him this Sunday, July 24th at Kowloon in Saugus, Massachusetts. For the details on that show and all the other shows Johnny A's got booked, check the show notes of this podcast. And while you're there, you can also check out the custom playlist, for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, I make a playlist that's filled with my guest music and all of the other music that we referenced in the interview. You'll find all of Johnny A's links and all of my links in there as well. And if you liked what you heard, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the Sit Rep, which is filled with all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info, every weekday, and it's only five minutes long. You can also join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And don't forget to listen to the Mistress Carrie radio show. Get the details online at mistresscarrie.com. And while you're on the website, check out the online store. All this month, get 10% off of everything you buy. Use the code JULY2022 at checkout the mistress Carrie podcast a proud member of the pantheon podcast network
0: at the home depot we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right that's why we offer free and interactive online diy workshops during the live streams our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your diy projects no matter your age or skill level you can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget because giving you options is the right thing to do.